0: Well, good evening. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We will be in Hebrews 6 tonight. We're going to go ahead and finish that chapter this evening. Hebrews 6, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 20. All right, Hebrews 6, we'll pick it up here in verse 9. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of His purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we come before you tonight gathered as your church to to learn from your word and from your Holy Spirit. We know that the Spirit uses the word he inspired to show us where we are off and where we need to go from here. I ask that you, Spirit, would do just that. Father, we submit this to your will and predestination in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, we come now to the end of Hebrews 6, and I'm calling this message The Promise and Oath. And up until this point, the writer of Hebrews has established several important things, most notably being the sovereignty and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He is our Um, He is our prophet, he is our priest, and he is our king. And central uh, to our undertaking here at Cross and Crown is a proper understanding of that supremacy. Jesus is, in fact, greater, and his greatness can only be adequately understood when we look at both who he is and what he has done. So, Jesus is our prophet He brings truth to bear on creation. He is our king. He rules from the throne of heaven over the affairs of the world through covenantally faithful people. And he is our priest. His entrance into heaven behind the veil, the Holy of Holies, as a man, um, now gives us right standing with God. So more to the point, when we consider Jesus Christ as high priest, and we've already looked at his atonement, uh, we, would, we, we have to keep in mind that all of that is the bedrock of our hope. That is the bedrock of our hope. It's not enough to believe Jesus died. It's not enough to believe that Jesus was raised. Demons believe this stuff. It is also incredibly important uh, that we believe on Jesus, who presently sits in heaven as an anchor. We'll come back to that shortly. So let's go ahead and walk through our text, and then we'll... Draw some implications. We learn in verse uh, verses nine through ten that though the previous passage had a very strong rebuke, there is still hope. Verse 9. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. So there was a strong rebuke up until this point, but there's still hope. Not everyone had gone through with this apostasy. Now, the Hebrews. The, the recipients of this should not have felt condemned, but rather rebuked, taught, if you will, warned not to fall away. That was the strong warning. Don't fall away. But this warning doesn't mean that there's nothing to commend them for. Indeed, there was much to commend. Now, notice that he says in verse 9, he calls them beloved. They are covenantally Christian if they hold fast, but they are beloved. And there are better things for them that accompany salvation. Why? Because God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you've shown toward his name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. They have been faithful to the Lord in their care for the brethren, a point that we shouldn't overlook. So they have done essentially the hard work of putting love into practice. In in an age when love is just uh, highly emotionalized and sensationalized, they have actually done what love does, and that's put, um, it puts it into practice. Not because they somehow earn, you know, some sort of standing with God, but because charity and love are the marks of a true Christian. It's fruit. However, they have to stay the course. Look at verses 11 and 12. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. Now, the Christian life is meant to be a manifestation of diligence. That's what it's supposed to be, a manifestation of diligence. Your sanctification has to be more than just theory. All right. It it has to show itself in diligence, dedication and rigor, right? Uh, Christians are people whose hands are dirty. That's the point. And and why is that? Because in doing all of that, we realize the full assurance of hope until the end. So Christian Christianity as it's portrayed today typically be, you know, you get your ticket punched and that's it. There's nothing else that God demands of you. Or if there is a demand, it tends to be highly institutionalized. Show up, tithe, and be quiet. That's typically how it works. But we're actually supposed to labor till the end, and we're supposed to have assurance until the end. So from birth to final breath, assurance of hope in your life happens when you are diligent. Your hands are dirty. You have splinters because you're working. Now, the other reason to be diligent, the writer says, Is because of the opposite problem, slothfulness or sluggish uh, in verse 12. Now, that's the same word um, that was used in chapter 5, verse 11, when he, the writer, rebuked them for being dull of hearing. If we aren't diligent in the Christian life, not only will we lack assurance, we will become sluggish. Um, If... (laughs) It's sort of the whole, there's no neutrality. So if Christianity isn't advancing, we're not laying down, we're going backwards. And that's the problem. If we are not diligent in the Christian life, not only do we lack assurance, we will become sluggish. Instead, though, the writer tells us we should be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Well, what is he talking about? Look at verses 13 and 14. At this point, the author brings up the patriarch Abraham, and for good reason. 13, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. The Abrahamic covenant, which um, Brother John read the verses from Genesis 22 there earlier, the Abrahamic covenant serves as the basis for all covenants, especially the new covenant. You cannot understand the new covenant unless you go back and understand the Abrahamic covenant. In this covenant with Abraham, God made him a promise. And what was the promise? Verse 14, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. Now, in order to provide assurance and hope for Abraham, God had to swear by himself. God could swear by no one else because there's no one greater, no higher authority to appeal to. He had to swear by himself. This promise could only be ratified by an oath, a self-inflicted oath. God could not swear by anything created. The only way to guarantee a promise, the only way for God to guarantee a promise that this promise, this blessing would come to fruition was for God to take the oath on himself. God cannot lie, and this fact alone is really, truly astonishing. We'll come back to the issue of oath in a little bit. In verse 15, we learn from Abraham's example, and certainly he is worthy of our uh, imitation. Abraham waited patiently, and in his patient waiting, he obtained the promise. The point is, Abraham had to endure much, and receiving the promise as a gift from God with God's seal on it was as good as getting the actual promise. That's part part of the issue here in verse 15 how did How did Abraham obtain the promise because he didn't you know at many points in his life he was promised a child, and the child never came how can How can the writer say that Abraham obtained the promise? Well, he obtained the promise because it was sealed by an oath from God when when that oath is sealed by God it's good as done it 's guaranteed Amen. now while many make many men make promises. Um, we offer some semblance of hope for the future. God, though, can give us full assurance. His oath cannot fail. And here's an illustration, verse 16. Verse 16 tells us that among men, oaths are done to sort of you know, settle a dispute, right? Men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath is given as confirmation as an end to every, every dispute. In other words, oaths oaths are something we give to each other to sort of end the strife, end the debacle, sort of put, put to rest the whatever the issue is we have going on. So, you know, I promise to you that I will do this or that by next week. Um, I was taught as a young child, you know, you got to be careful what you promise, because <laughs> you may promise a whole lot, and if you don't come through, then what? Especially when we make rash oaths, which is what Jesus was attacking in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, let your yes be yes, your no be no. Don't don't make oaths, you know, don't, don't crank them out <laughs> like, it's a, like it's a mill that we just, you know, we'll just make oaths and promises and then you never keep it. So oaths serve as a confirmation of a promised action. That's the point. When you make an oath, you are giving a uh, confirmation of your promise. This is a legally binding, put your character and your word on the line promise. So what happens if someone makes a promise to you and they don't, they don't get, come through with it? You lose trust, right? So that's part of the issue with oaths. You let your yes be yes. Do it or don't do it. Don't say you're going to do it and don't do it because then, you know, (laughs) everything else is on the line. In a similar way, verse 17 says that God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed or another translation could be guaranteed with an oath. So follow the the train of thought, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise. God promised Abraham, consigned it by oath, sealed, you know, signed, sealed, delivered. But he wanted to show his heirs the unchangeableness of his purpose. So how did he do it? Again, he gave an oath. God's oath on top of the promise shows the heirs God's power. And verse 18 So that by two unchangeable things, the two unchangeable things are what? God's promise and his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie. Right, kids? You're asked that question. Can God do anything? Well, God cannot lie. He he doesn't lie. It's not something that he does. So by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hope of the hope that is set before us. Now, notice the word refuge used. The refuge part is a clear hat tip to the cities of refuge in the Old Testament. That was a provision in the law of God. Christ fulfills this. Cities of refuge were places a man could go to receive judgment and arbitration and adjudication for things like accidental manslaughter. You probably remember the axe head falls off and accidentally kills somebody. That's what the city of refuge... You know, um, thing was for, but in Christ, who is our refuge, in Christ we are guilty. We're guilty sinners. We deserve condemnation. So we run to Him. We receive His judgment, which is actually, you know, He He took upon the judgment on Himself. We are then absolved from our sins because He is our refuge. Now the point here is this: God does all of this with a promise and an oath, so that and when we take refuge in Him, we would have strong encouragement. That's my aim tonight, is to give you strong encouragement. And thus, take hold of the hope set before us. And what is the hope? Verse 19. This hope, whenever you're reading the Bible and you have a question, just keep reading. Typically, it answers it. What is the hope? This hope we have as an anchor of the soul so all of you who profess the name of Jesus Christ, same goes for you children. You have a hope, and that hope is an anchor of your soul. Who knows, kids? Who know, what does an anchor do in a boat? It holds it down. Yeah. Why? Because they don't want the boat to move, right? Good job. That's exactly it. Your soul has an anchor. Your soul, it's Jesus. Brilliant. It's true. Your soul has an anchor to hold you down so that you're not drifting drifting off to sea. So this hope, verse 19, we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. It is sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So thank you, Ezra. You are absolutely right. Our hope, our hope, in pointing out the obvious, is Jesus. Our hope is Jesus, who is an anchor for our souls. And the, the beautiful thing about this anchor is this anchor holds within the veil. The veil was in the temple. And, it, and if, if you remember the veil, uh, the, the veil separated the Holy of Holies from the inner sanctuary. There were layers to who could go in what parts of the temple all the way from the court of the Gentiles and then a place for the Jewish women the Jewish men the high priest, the Levites and then the high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year Um, so when Jesus died though do you remember what the gospel of Mark tells us what happens to the veil the veil was torn from the top to the bottom when Jesus died, the veil was torn, and the Holy of Holies that Jesus entered into was not, listen carefully, It was not a temple made of human hands, but the veil of heaven. There's a reason that Jesus did not go to the temple. Well, he did go to the temple to bring judgment. He did not go to the temple to die. He was actually sentenced outside the gate, outside the camp. That's where he was condemned. And so there's a whole lot of significance there. But notice, though, The veil is, he's the anchor of the soul, and the veil is in heaven, the holy of holies. And Jesus, the text says in verse 20, entered there as a forerunner for us. So, to just sort of sum it all up here, there are better things, verse 9, there are better things that accompany salvation. What are they? Well, they're full assurance of hope until the end, that's verse 11, There's faithful and patient inheritances of the promises of God. That's verse 12. The unchangeable nature and character of God's intent to save, which is verse 17. There's strong encouragement for us who are heirs to take hold of that hope, verse 18. And lastly, there's an anchor for the soul, one who is sure and one who is steadfast. So that's our text. I just want to spend the rest of our time just unpacking it a little bit. As Christians on this side of the resurrection, we are called to do kingdom work. We know that. That's sort of that <laughs> we sort of gave ourselves away when we named this fellowship Cross and Crown Church. We could have just stopped with cross and remained impotent like most of evangelicalism, but we wanted to uh, invoke the crown, the crown rights of King Jesus. So we are called, we know this, to disciple nations We are to teach them how obedience to God's law work, word actually functions. So we have this incredibly huge task. It's overwhelming when you think about it. Um, We have so much work to do in our county here. We have so much work to do in Virginia. And then we have so much, and then it's like, oh good, the United States, we're done. No, the whole world needs Jesus. So we have tons of work to do. And you may feel overwhelmed. But if you consider the the situation of the Hebrews, the recipients of this letter, I think you'll find comfort. As I mentioned before, this letter was written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. AD 70 was a major, major event. This letter was written in such a way as to basically encourage, rebuke, and admonish the readers, the listeners, and to spur them on. We'll be told to do that later in Hebrews, to spur each other on towards love, towards good, you know, obedience, um, kindness, charity, everything. So th- the letter serves as, as that main thing. Now, they too, they too had this incredible calling. They had a, an, an amazing calling to do the Great Commission, to, to achieve the Great Commission. Now, there weren't that many Christians. If you th- have you ever sat and thought about the fact that Jesus started with 12 men and one of them betrayed him anyway? it's i mean how do how do you sit down and tell 11 dudes hey we're going to conquer the world <laughs> and 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 not feel overwhelmed right i don't know i you think about that for a little while <laughs> like israel the hebrews they were to take the land they were to invade the world with the gospel and really when we think about it they when you think think about how it started small and how they There are Christians on every single populated continent on this world. There are Christians. Fascinating. And all of it was really, in a sense, because of their faithfulness too. Now yes, Western culture is looking pretty bleak. We keep chipping at the foundations, and eventually the building tips over. But that doesn't mean that we're without hope. Quite the contrary. When it comes to hope, which is the encouragement here in verse um, in verse 12, when it comes to hope, we have work to do. In, in today's culture, everyone seems to have hope in all the wrong places. Because we refuse to obey Christ and his law word, we end up electing leaders, for example, that, um, that are made in our image. So say what you say, say whatever you want to say uh, about Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, but the fact that we had those two people as options says more about us than them. It says that we don't care about honoring Christ's covenant, and it says that character and such is not important. It also says that our hope, that our hope is vested in a humanistic law order. Now, <laughs> you, you uh, uh, trigger warning here. <laughs> you, you will have conversations with people, and, and you know, um, didn't matter what side of the political spectrum you were on. Obama was clearly a messianic figure, and uh, I think the same, whether on the right side or the left side of the aisle, doesn't matter. Trump acted a, 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 as a messianic figure too, because when he won, we probably should have been repenting in sackcloth and ashes, um, but instead we rejoiced because our guy won. It, you know, granted, he's semi dysfunctional. But So don't tell me we don't put hope in politicians. That's my point. We put hope in a whole lot of places. But all of this says that we we just don't care about those things. We would rather have this humanistic law order and some semblance of a July 4th barbecue. (laughs) Praise God for that. And that's that's fine with us. We're, We're fine with it. Now, politics, obviously, that's easy to pick on. That, that's low-hanging fruit, but the point remains. We think that hope is something that we can just cook up and develop on our own and all of it apart from Christ. That's what we're doing right now. And right now, we think that our hope is, vest- is invested in things like sexual promiscuity and exploitation, for example. We think that, that our feelings on the matter of things like gender and marriage and so on... Are more important than even science or fact that's the hilarious thing anymore. you want to push the antithesis into something like we're to the point where science was no science was the argument against God, and now well, we can't use it to argue for things like binary gender, so we have to abandon that now because it doesn't fit us that's where we're at that's where the hope is there are <laughs> there is a hope out there. That people will be freed from the patriarchy, wherever they're at, freed from all vestiges of Christian influence and law order, freed from the perceived chains of an ancient religion like Christianity. That's where where hope is going right now. In today's thinking, if one wants hope, he cannot have it in God. He can only have it if he makes it. Man has to create it. So hope then is is this purely subjective projection of one's aspirations, all of it religiously motivated for some sort of utopian future. That's what hope is. That's where we're at right now. Hope is a purely subjective um, projection of one's aspirations, all religiously motivated for some sort of utopian future. So throwing away any semblance of God's law order in a culture is a subversive attempt at legislating another religion, one that is built on another hope. That's where it boils down to. In a culture like ours, in a culture that is bent on doing emotion instead of careful thoughtfulness grounded on the promises of God, you too may be tempted to go the emotional route too. You may be <laughs> have the conversations with the folks, the, the doomsday folks who are who have pantries and pantries of food because the rapture is coming, which is always funny because, like, you're not going to be here to eat it. Why do you need it? Whatever. We'll take it. But there's just such paranoia, and so people feel like there's no hope. They, They read the news headlines. They see what our politicians are doing. They look at the public school system. They look at all this stuff, and Christians say there's no hope. We don't have any hope. We can't do it. It's like the spies that looked in the land, oh, they're too big. Everything's just, we can't do it. We can't do it. So don't, my, my warning is don't go the emotional route. Don't base your theology on newspaper headlines. It's never going to go well for you. So you, you may be here tonight, and you may be finding your circumstances to be entirely unbearable and completely overwhelming Listen, Scripture says to take your thoughts captive. That's a phrase we use quite a bit around our house. Take your thoughts captive. Remember what Hebrews has already established. Jesus Christ is bringing many sons to glory. That's you. That's me. That's what he's doing. He's bringing many sons to glory. It is the intention of God in the gospel to bring you to glory. That's what he's doing. God wants you. (laughs) God wants you. He wants your life. He wants all of your life. And he wants to bring you to glory. Which means that we have to be able to shift our thinking around a bit. We need to take seriously what we talked about last week. The rebuke that came um, before this passage here tonight. Spiritual sloth is ruinous. Spiritual sloth in your life is ruinous. Ignoring one's spiritual state is ruinous unreservedly disastrous. And I'm, and I'm not talking about just personal piety alone, though that's important too, right? We must, we must never ignore the impulse to pray. We must never be content with letting days and weeks go by before we picked up our Bible. We should be eager to pray as much as we're eager to eat. So I'm not just talking about that aspect, but don't forget what the writer has already taught us. Spirituality and maturity go hand in hand. The ability to judge with righteous judgment, those are actually Jesus' words, the ability to judge with righteous judgment is the ability to appraise all things, to judge all things, to ultimately have discernment towards that which is good and that which is evil. So the spirituality the writer is getting at has to do with this type of maturity and immaturity. Now, the inability of Christians... Okay, The inability of Christians to make basic ethical choices and judgment is a result of spiritual slothfulness. Follow that train of thought. When we ignore covenant law, we ignore ethics. When we ignore ethics, guess what? We can't make decisions. When we can't make decisions, we make ourselves entirely irrelevant. And I mentioned this last week, but we're, we still don't get... That government schools is sin. Why (laughs) we we haven't gotten to that point yet? Well, you know, salt and light, and all these other things. We we can't even get a basic ethical moral decision down pat. Mm -hmm. We we still we, we just don't know. The verdict's apparently still out. So follow that. When we ignore the covenant law, what do we ignore? We ignore ethics. When you ignore ethics, you um you can't make decisions. When you can't make decisions, you have officially made yourself entirely irrelevant to society around you. Because now, well, you're not sure if I can stand in the corner and hold a sign. I mean, I'm not, because that's spiritual slothfulness. So all of this goes, in hand, goes hand in hand. Don't forget Hebrews 6.1. We have to be diligent to press on towards maturity. You are all required by God in His Word to press on toward maturity. God does not tolerate the man or the woman who just wants to be immature their entire life and they don't want to actually put God's word in and his principles into action. But how do we press on? You might be thinking, well, that's great. You know, I we're supposed to press on towards something and I have no idea how to press on, nor do I even know where to start. It's a good thing you're here. Let me help you. The way we do this is found in the objectivity of Christ. As I said at the beginning, it's about who Christ is and what Christ has done. And what we learn from this passage is the fact that we three things, ready? Christ is our refuge, Christ is our anchor, Christ is our forerunner. Christ is our refuge. He is our anchor. And he is our forerunner. This is the basis of our hope. Hope is not some emotional wish, but it's a legally established fact rooted in covenantal promise. I'll say it again. Hope is not an emotional wish, but it's a legally established fact rooted in covenantal promise. So we apprehend hope by faith in Christ, our high priest. That's how we get it. That's the only way you get it. You can't, you can't manufacture the hope. Um, you can't find it anywhere outside of him. Any attempt to redefine hope is an all-out assault on Christ. Any attempt to fabricate some sort of false hope outside of Christ is ultimately utterly futile. So the basis of your hope, dear Christian, is not what you do for Christ, nor is it something you do for yourself. That's not where your hope is found. Your hope is in Jesus Christ, our high priest. That is it. That is the end of the conversation. If you are banking on something other than Christ to give you hope in this world, you are barking up the wrong covenantal tree. And the reason this is so is because of who God is. He is a covenantal God, and he is not, he's not silent, but he's not inactive either. Behind the promises of God stands a God with holy, just, and righteous character. Know that. Know that when God promises certain things, He's sort of got the character thing down. He is holy, and He is just, and He is righteous. The promise is as good as the person making it. Listen, God throws the entire weight of His holiness behind His promises and because of it you can trust it it's irrevocable think about that when god makes a promise he throws the entire weight of his holiness behind it he's guaranteed it you can trust it it's it's irrevocable but one thing we must not do is assume that when things get tough our hope has somehow changed we cannot think that circumstances dictate whether or not our hope is readily available Consider for a moment the issue of holiness. This passage instructs us to be diligent, to pursue holiness and sanctification with fervor and much attention. But don't make the mistake. Don't, don't mistake what's happening in your life as something um, that, that moves and shifts your hope around. Holiness happens in the struggle. Holiness happens in the struggle holiness isn't being free from the struggle it's being in Christ in the struggle okay so don't miss that so the more you remain anchored in Christ who is our anchor the more you will find that hope is within reach and honestly many christians lack in this in this area we we really we really oftentimes don't think that we have an anchor and i get it like when things don't go our way, kids, I'm talking to you too, when things don't go your way, what we must not do, what we must refuse to do is um, somehow loosen the anchor. Loosen the anchor. Uh, you know, um, the, the old joke is, you know, Jesus is our anchor. What? He holds you down? Like, this sort of downer thing. He prevents you from doing what you want to do? Well, yeah, actually, that's a good thing because what I want to do and what Christ wants from me sometimes isn't the same thing. So there, there is a great temptation for all of us to sort of just loosen the anchor so that you can float about and do your own thing. Resist this urge. Christ has gone ahead as our forerunner, not so that you can go somewhere else. No, he has gone there so you can go there. To be a forerunner is to go ahead as a trailblazer so that others can follow He's not a forerunner, so you can make your own path. So go to him, we must. One of the ways that we go to him, though, in this passage, I want to point this out too, is through imitation. We are exhorted here in Hebrews 6 not to be sluggish and slothful, but instead be imitators, be imitators, verse 12, of those who, have had, who had faith and patience, men like Abraham. But imitation takes practice it's something that we have to rehearse it's not something that you can set aside and expect results right you can't pop an imitation pill and settle the matter and it's done and over with we have to be diligent in imitation we have to which means that you're going to have to set the alarm you'll have to scribble it on a notebook and we're going to have to work on some things christianity takes work remember the dirty hands so when you're arguing with some, something, with a friend or a spouse or even a child, you'll have to be mature to the point where you're still anchored in Christ. You don't loosen the anchor and then function like a free man outside of Jesus. That's not how it works. So when you're going through a difficult time, family-related, work-related, you know, any sort of frustrating time, you have to remember where you're anchored. And you see, here's the, here's the thing apostates, they aren't banking on the promises of God. They're banking on themselves. That's a difference between a Christian and an apostate. Apostates are banking on themselves. They're not banking on the promises of God. They don't think that, that they're going to have success because of God. They're going to do it themselves. So, and, and no one wakes up and thinks himself to be a, become an apostate. I'm going to roll out of bed. You know what? I'm just going to go ahead and apostatize today. Like it was just a whim decision they made, you know, at 8 a.m. that morning because their breakfast burrito wasn't very good or something. That person becomes apostate because he was self deceived, right? And the tricky thing about the, fat, the fact of self deception is you don't know you're doing it. That's why we have to be diligent. But all of this is rooted in a lack of imitation, it's a lack of pursuing Christ who is our refuge, it's a lack of pursuing Christ who is our anchor a lack of pursuit of Christ who is our forerunner. It's a lack sometimes of banking on God's promises. See, none of this is subjective. None of this is wishful thinking. None of this is rooted in paganized language, which, which, which hope is just kind of repackaged into your own self-perceived um, aspirations. And hope is not even how emotionally charged you are. No one at a feminist rally is walking around with droopy, a droopy face. There is a lot of emotion. There's a lot of hope. There's a whole lot of things that happen at something like that. So it's, but it's not about how emotionally charged you are. Hope is a person, and hope is what that person has given you. See, the beautiful thing about a passage like this is the fact that God has sworn by himself. Listen to Isaiah 45, 23. You want to maybe look this up later, but I'll read it. Isaiah 45, 23 says this. I have sworn by myself. I have, listen to this promise. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. What's the word? That to me, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. That's the promise. And the promise is, Jesus, uh, the promise that God has made in Christ is he's sworn upon himself. So when you consider the promises of God as being sealed by an oath, when you consider the fact that God brings all of his promises together and he wraps them all up in Christ, who is our anchor within the veil, none of you have reason to doubt. None of you. None of you have reason to question whether or not God is going to make it happen. Who or what can you appeal to in in the universe to bring about a better judicial ruling? Where can you go? Where can you go to bring some sort of charge against God to appeal his covenant oath? Where can you go? Nowhere. So why try? Why bank on some sort of higher, supposed higher authority? The promise and the oath are secure. This anchor that's within the veil, it's there and it's strong. And this anchor in this oath in this promise, they're secure because that anchor does hold there. It's not secure because you're holding on tightly. Security isn't guaranteed because you feel a certain way today or because you think you have the ability to control it. The security of our salvation isn't even wrapped up in your ability to imitate those who have inherited the promises, though we're supposed to do that. The security of this inheritance is held by Christ, our anchor. You need nothing else. You don't need another hope. You have one. So don't make your faith anchored in subjectivity. It doesn't work that way. And here's the reality of this passage, and I'll I'll end here. Christ is not king unless he is first our priest. We've established that. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, he makes us our... He makes us, his people, by atoning for our sins. Then and only then can we be renewed. This means that any future aspirations that we have, any future promises of God, that's the post-millennial hope, any of those things are guaranteed. Take it all the way to the bank, guarantee. that They are as good as the God we serve when, when Habakkuk says that the knowledge of God's going to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea, that's a promise. That's not a wishful thinking. That's a promise, and it's sealed by an oath, an oath that God guarantees. So all of that makes our hope very real. It makes that hope true. It makes it palpable. You can touch it in history. Because Christ is our high priest who governs history, his kingdom, though, is now a present reality, an active reality, and we all get to participate in it. How? Charity, love, service, imitation, community, and so on. So all of this means that we're not, we're not doing it so we can get whatever we want out of the deal. We are working for God's kingdom, which means that we do it with patience, and we do it with faith, not slothfulness, Then and only then do we manifest true Christian religion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful tonight that the anchor within the veil that is sure and steadfast isn't us, but is your Son, Jesus Christ. We are thankful, Jesus, that that you as our high priest have, have gone inside the Holy of Holies as a man on our behalf, so that as our forerunner, we can join you and take refuge in you. We rejoice, Father, that you have given us your Spirit as a means of seeing the fruit of the kingdom implemented in our lives. And we don't presume upon that, but ask God that your promises would be real to us, that we would see your name lifted high and your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We humbly yet boldly ask that you make your promises real time to us, that we would see our labors here as being effective for your kingdom. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.